Are you looking for new books to read? Do you like finding a new special author? Are you tired of the same old books from the same old authors? Well then, welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where you can hear from fantastic new authors. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have worked hard to write great new books. Hear about their book and why you should check it out. So sit back and listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. Hello, welcome to episode 105 of Discovered Wordsmiths. This is going to be a great episode. If you are a regular listener to author podcasts, I'm sure you've heard this uh, person. It's Guy Windsor. He's the sword guy. Haha. Um, it's really a fun talk. I like hearing all about the swords and what he does. It's super interesting. So I think uh, those of you that are interested in swords, those of you that like the sword fighting, he has a lot to say and his book. Looks like it'd be something you should have. Uh, and possibly some of his other ones also. And as a reminder, if you do enjoy the author, if you enjoy this podcast and you're interested in his book, go to the sh- the website, the show notes, and click on the link there. Yes, it's an affiliate link. It gives me a couple cents uh, when you click it and buy the book so I can help support the podcast. The time I put into it, the cost of the software, the cost of the hosting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But also, it doesn't hurt Guy, uh, and he still gets his commission on the book. So you're helping lots of people and getting a wonderful book. And that goes for every interview, every author that's on here. Uh, clicking the link helps out multiple people, including yourself, for getting a great book. And there are a few other links I've added to the show notes. That is the services that I use. If you are an author or thinking of doing a podcast, Go ahead and click these, check it out. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it will help support the show the more people that do that. So, uh, before we go too far, let's get into the interview with Guy. Here you go. Guy, let me welcome you to today's uh, podcast, Discovered Wordsmiths. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm great. So, usually when we get started, I ask people, tell us a little bit about you and what you like to do outside of writing. It's all part of one package. Basically, my day job is I find historical sword fighting sources, so books written a long time ago about how to fight with swords by people who actually did it or their students actually did it for real. And I recreate the systems of fencing that those books represent. And I organize those systems into syllabi that uh, modern people can train safely. And then I teach that as a kind of living martial art to my students. And that takes up quite a lot of my time, you can imagine, because there's lots of parts of that, physical training and you know, practicing with weapons and teaching in person and teaching online and all that sort of stuff, and the research and finding the sources and working with the sources and figuring out the language, and it's quite a lot. So when I'm not doing that, my three current hobbies, well, four, I do woodworking, the reason I love I used to be a professional cabinet maker, oh, nice. um, now just as a hobby. I do a bit of indoor climbing. And I have recently taken up both watch repair, so fixing like old watches, because it's just fascinating, don't know why, and most like amazingly, mind-blowingly, awesomely fantastic, flying light aircraft. Oh, wow, cool. 
I must say, I normally hear, oh, I like to go hiking. I, I play some guitar. I read, blah, blah. I, I've never heard anybody say, yeah, I casually uh, do plumbing as a hobby. <laughs> so is there like plumbing competitions you like then or something I, with I that? Did, I didn't say plumbing. I said indoor climbing. Oh, climbing. I thought you said climbing. plumbing. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> that's totally different. <laughs> Great. Okay. Indoor climbing. Yes. that's a, I love doing that. Yeah. So the watch repair, that's very interesting because I know that's a lot of little pieces. Yeah, and I'm easing into it. I just I like watches generally. I just like it as objects. And I have this nice old, it's not valuable, but maybe I paid like $70 for it on eBay. It's sort of 19, late 1940s, early 1950s Swiss watch. And it needs servicing. And I thought it's going to cost me like two or $300 to get it serviced properly. Because basically, to service it, they have to take it completely apart, clean all the pieces, reassemble it with the right oils and things to make it run smoothly. You can't just dunk it in WD-40 and hope for the best. You actually have to do it properly or it doesn't work. And then they reassemble the whole thing and put it back. So it's quite a lot of time from a skilled craftsman. So it's expensive. So I thought, why don't I do it myself? And then I thought, well, I have no idea how to even start. So I bought a job lot of broken watches on eBay. Again, not very much money. And some of them are quartzes, some of them are mechanical, and some are wind-up mechanical, and some are automatic mechanical, so self-winding. And I started by replacing the batteries, the quartz ones, to see how that goes. And about eight of them started working again. So great, cleaned them up a little bit. So I've got these completely unnecessary, like, eight watches sitting around my house. And one, I've replaced the broken uh, quartz movement with a new quartz movement. And... That hasn't gone quite right, but getting there. And I'm just gently building up to taking one of the manual winding mechanical watches apart, cleaning it and putting it back together and seeing what happens. I thought it's better to practice on things I don't care about. So it doesn't matter if I just ruin it. Yeah, that's actually quite recent. I kind of got into that just a few months ago and it's taking up a lot of space. So so you're very active, even your day job with, all the research you do, which connects to the books we're going to talk about, but even your hobbies are, are active, interesting, not just sitting. I love that. It's one of the things I talk to parents about, helping your kids find the passions in their life, the things they enjoy right. doing. Yeah, and the key to that really, I think, because I have two kids, is to expose them to lots of different things. Yes. And when they show interest, just don't get too helicopter about it but just gently encourage it oh you'd like to do a drama club fine okay we'll find a drama club and they go to a drama club and isn't that nice and if they get into it they get into it and if they don't then maybe dance lessons or horse riding or although um, my eldest is turning 15 soon and her birthday present is a lesson in an airplane first flying lesson i really hope she doesn't like it too much because it is (laughs) woefully expensive yeah, yeah, that happens, unfortunately, with some of the things. But yeah. I, I like that you're doing that. I did that with my kids a lot, too. Yeah. So your day job, you do a, you research ancient old texts with weaponry yeah. and use that to teach people. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it connects to your books. Obviously, they're okay. connected. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, so if you think maybe late 14th century, a master at arms, writes down his ideas for how knightly combat should look 
in a book. And one guy who did that is called Fiore de Liberi, and he wrote his fantastic treatise, Il Fiore di Battaglia, The Flower of Battle, around about 1400. There are four existing copies in manuscript form in various places. So we have, I don't have the originals, of course, but we have scans of those. And having figured out the language, so when he's, he says what he says in Italian, what in, in dodgy Italian handwriting, so figuring out the handwriting, and then when you've got the handwriting, figuring out the language, and then when you've got the language, figuring out what he's actually trying to say, then recreating the actions that he describes in the book. And that involves, of course, also finding necessary equipment and finding people to make that equipment. And there's a whole lot of physical culture around it. And then figuring out the movement patterns, figuring out the tactics and the general approach to the system. and then figuring out ways to practice it without killing anyone, because obviously modern sport fencing equipment is not designed to handle pole axes, for example. And then sort of getting, expressing that, there, there are lots of different ways to think about it. There's a fencing system where you can learn how to do this, and then you can fence with your friends and even fence competitively. So it, you can adapt it to a modern combat sport. It's also intended, as the original system is intended, for professional warriors to go around killing their enemy. So you can train it as a martial art in the sort of truest sense of the word. It's where you're simulating situations in which somebody is going to die. Obviously, you have to simulate it. We have, <laughs> right. a, we have a very strict policy about, you know, there must be no death. No, <laughs> safety is critically important. Because whenever you're doing, whenever you're doing anything dangerous, Safety is the critical thing, just like yeah. flying. The rules and regulations around flying are intense for a good reason, because if you get it wrong, people die. And so part of it, I have this, let's stick with Fiori for a minute. I have an interpretation of how I think his system works and how it's put together and how you should move and act to when you're actually using his system. Now, I may be right, I may be wrong. The only way to find out is to test it. So I have my students you know, are part of that sort of testing process. So I teach them my ideas as to how this should work and we see how it works in real life. Okay? But also I have colleagues who are interested in this sort of thing. And so I need to publish my interpretation so that other people can see what I think of this and respond accordingly. For example, my book, from medieval manuscript to modern practice, it has, here is what Fiori says in the original Italian. So this is what I think the original Italian is. There may be mistakes in how I've read the handwriting, for instance. Then this is how I translate it into English. So this is what I think the text means in English, and there may be mistakes in translation. And then here are the pictures, and here is my explanation of how I would do this. And then there's a link to a video showing me or my students actually doing it. So every stage of my interpretation is exposed to criticism, criticism in the kind of positive sense. Yeah. So that kind of transparency is entirely essential for any kind of research project. Because if other people can't respond to what you're doing, you don't have that, that testing capacity. You don't have any way of checking whether you're going down a, a wrong path okay so that's so 
some of my books are aimed at basically making my interpretation available to people so they can see what I think of it, so they can respond to it, so that I can improve it. But some people just want to know how to fight with swords. And they're happy to take my word for what Fury is saying and all that. And they don't actually, not necessarily right now, interested in the historical research side of it. They just want to pick up swords and whack their friends in a safe and authentic manner. So I have other books which basically tell you how to do that. So reference to Fury, but not a detailed analysis of why I think we do it this way. Just simply, this is how we do it. Try this. Got it. And then I have other books, which, uh, for example, I have one book which is a translation of a medieval source, late for, late 15th century combat manual written by a guy called Philip Ovadi uh, in the 1480s. Where it was it's dated to the 1480s. And I tra- translated that because I felt my community needed a translation. And I thought, well, I've got the translation now, I might as well put it in the book. Sure enough, I put it in the book and people start critiquing it. Like, ah, but guy, online this says this and online that you say this and put those together and it can be annoying but it's essential it's absolutely critical if you actually want to get good at anything you have to have these feedback systems and the one way to create that feedback system is to publish what you're doing so that other people can speak it and then there's another aspect to all of this which is why do people pick up swords in the first place? It's the 21st century. This is not, shall we say, an essential modern life skill. But people are drawn to the sword for all sorts of kind of personal development, even spiritual reasons. Okay. And they are, there's a whole kind of depth of practice that that opens you up to. Okay. And most people have never been properly taught how to practice. And I go, actually, I'm dissatisfied with this. All right? Maybe I have weak legs, or maybe my left shoulder doesn't work so well, or maybe I, don't know, I know I'm not eating properly, or maybe I sleep badly, or whatever. All, all these sorts of things. And they just don't know what to do about it. And there's a ton of people who are quite happy to tell you, this is the way, do it like this. And... For a small proportion of the human population, what they're saying will probably work. But absolutely nothing works perfectly for everyone. A classic example, glycemic response. Foods have this glycemic index thing. But glycemic response is particular to individuals. So you might eat a, I don't know, a cream cheese bagel and it does nothing to your blood sugar. I might eat exactly the same thing and it spikes my blood sugar quite badly. Yeah, And the only way to know is to test, to find out what foods spike your blood sugar. If you're interested in that sort of thing, you have to test it. But most people don't even know that. And so they take this, this information coming in from all sorts of places, and some sources are quite authoritative and some aren't. But like even doctors, bless them, they have a tough job to do. But they have to advise you about what works for most people most of the time. Nothing works for everybody all of the time. And so what you have to do to get to where you want to go in martial arts or anywhere else is you have to figure out what actually works for you, you personally, right? And it may not work for your identical twin because it's not just about genetics. And so my latest book, um, The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, is about figuring out what works for you, 
how to go about that and then how to incorporate that into whatever training practices you want to do. Oh, nice. Okay. So I was going to say your books are sound like a part historical part lesson and learning. So is it, are they of interest to people that just like ancient swords and reading about them and seeing pictures along with people who want to actually learn? I don't actually have any books on swords as objects. Okay. Right. Obviously swords are objects and I have lots of, for example, in my book, Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts, there is a chapter on how to choose the right training sword for you. Yeah. Because people need to know that. But I don't go into detail about you know, this historical sword and where it comes from and that's because other scholars have done that to a degree which is which goes way past my interest. I'm not that interested in swords as objects. I'm interested in swords as things you actually use. It's the difference between some people collect classic cars because they just love classic cars and then they're all about classic cars and they have a garage full of them and the point is having the car and the car is the point. Other people maybe only have one car but they're really into driving it. Yeah. I'm much more on the driving end of the spectrum than I am on the collecting end of the spectrum. Got it. Okay. And so the the new book, The Windsor Method, like you just mm-hmm. were mentioning, is actually helping to help people begin learning sword. Is um, that correct? It's actually it's for anyone who wants to get better at whatever art they choose to practice. And that okay. is, it's generally aimed, I think, the way the book came about was in 2019, I produced an online course on solo training, so how to train by yourself, okay? because that is a skill that many martial artists need to work on because you show up to class or whatever, and there's people to train with, and it's more fun to train with other people. There is a bunch of stuff that you really should be doing that doesn't actually require a training partner. I mean, one obvious example would be strength, but there are all sorts of other skills that are sometimes best developed on your own. Like, for instance, hitting things really hard. <laughs> you don't want to hit your training partner really hard, but you need to be able to hit hard. And so you have to hit things. Boxers will use a heavy bag or focus mitts or speedball. We use a wall target or a pell or have somebody hold a tire for us to hit. And so I produce this online course aimed entirely at getting, giving people ideas and a proper practice in how to train alone and then of course a few months later the pandemic hit all the clubs were shut and suddenly like my entire sword fighting community could only train by themselves and so i made the course available for but it was 500 bucks ahead and no one should paying 500 dollars for an online course at the beginning of a pandemic when you don't know if you're going to keep your job or what the hell's going to happen so i dropped it to 20 and anyone who wanted to get in, or who needed the course but didn't have $20 because pandemic, could just email me, I'll send them a code, they get in for free, right? So it created this quite large community of people who were training on their own, but training sort of the way I do it. And I realized that for many of them, the okay, online courses are really good for practice. Like, okay, hold the sword like this, swing the sword like that, hit this thing like that. They are less good at laying out the, the fundamental principles behind the thing. Okay? 
books are perfect. So I thought I need what I need to do is produce a book that will solve that that problem of of how do we present the principles in the most efficient way. So I wrote that book in 2020 and 2021, and it published it last year. And obviously, it's included in the online course so that you know people have access to the principles as they should. But you know, it's also of interest to people who are not currently training swordsmanship at all, because the principles of how you get better at fencing or historical swordsmanship or whatever you want to call it are the same as the principles of getting better at drawing or plumbing your previous example right. or, or anything else right it's you know skill development craft development is a thing it is a thing it's a fundamental skill that applies to pretty much every area of anybody's life and there are ways of going about it that are better or worse for you one thing that surprised a lot of people when the book came out is that my first thing is mental health. Your mental health practices have to be right so that you are in a fit emotional state to do the necessary practice to get good at the thing you want to do, right? Then after that, physical health, okay? Because let's say the art is painting, okay? If you're getting tendonitis in your wrists from all this painting, you can't paint. So you need to know how to get your body into the state it needs to be in to do the thing you want it to do Whatever art you practice, mental health is first, physical health is second, and then there's all this other slightly more sword-specific stuff. So towards the end of the book, you get things like striking, but in the middle of the book, you've got things like breathing and meditation. And that's, I, I totally get that important, because I took a martial arts called Kuksawan, and you started off with conditioning and strengthening and learning kicks and falls, and you had to start with that. You always get the people coming in and says, well, I want to do sword. Yeah, you'll get that in about three years. You got to do all this other stuff to build up to it. <laughs> three years, with, wow. Yeah, cool. it took an average of four years to get black belt. For, for people. Oh, and so, you, only let, you only let the black belts have swords? Pardon me, what? And only the black belts got to have swords? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. It, when, your last step before black belt, you started working with sword, and then you get to second level of black belt. There was more sword work, and we, we used staffs earlier, but swords were later. And and that's the other thing with the physical. They get heavy after you swing them for a while. Yeah, people say that, but honestly, I... Okay, my absolute biggest sword is currently in Finland, so I can't show it to you. It is about five foot long. The cross okay. guard is about, I don't know, 18, 20 inches wide. The blade is about three inches wide at the at the hilt. It's a big sword. It weighs about six pounds, and I can throw it around with one hand without too much trouble. Uh, I can send you a video if you, because the thing is, if the sword is balanced properly and you're using it properly, it really isn't heavy. After a long time, it will start to weigh you down a bit. But it's a labor. <laughs> I, I view the sword as a labor-saving device. Okay, and it's like a washing machine or a toaster. I want to kill that person over there, right? Now I could go all the way over there and start punching them, and exert an awful lot of force or i can just go boom and they die perfect so the sword is a labor-saving device now obviously i wouldn't kill anybody but so the notion of the sword being something heavy that resists your motion 
I think is coming at the sword from the wrong direction because it's supposed to make life easier. You have a sword because it makes it easier to do the thing you want to do. Okay, right? yeah. And and I treat pretty much all of the things that I work with the same way. Um, flying the plane, for example. The damn sight easier to learn to fly a plane than it is to flap your arms and take off. So, it's more expensive too, though. <laughs> yeah, but it actually works. <laughs> right. So your books sound like you're, you've got the authority of old methods brought into the modern world. Sword fighting, sword use, sword everything based on what people have done for centuries. Yeah, what people did centuries ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So are, is there any other books out there that you like that you didn't happen to write? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. As you can see from over there, there are a lot of books. books yes, there are hundreds. It really depends on the topic. I mean, usually for me, it's about 200 books in for every one book that comes out. So pick a topic. What, what would you like a book recommendation on? I don't know. What you, like, what's some of the ancient texts that you've used for this newest method that you compiled? Okay. Okay. Each of my syllabi are specific to one particular source. So, for okay. example, when I'm teaching rapier, I'm usually teaching rapier according to Capoferro, Rodolfo Capoferro's Gran Simulacro del Arte del Uso de la Scalma, great representation of the art and use or art and practice of fencing, which was published in 1610. And I just happen to have this is the book. Okay, let me just adjust it so you, so you can yeah. see it on the camera. Nice. Okay. This copy of the book is 412 years old. Yeah. Now, you can get facsimiles, and I do have facsimiles, but this is a glorious book. I've only had this for a couple of months, so I'm still like super excited about it. You don't normally have to go and find a 400-year-old original. You can <laughs> get these days you can get scans and what have you. So, the sources right. that I work with most are Capoferro, which I just showed you. Also, this is uh, Il Fiore Battaglia. Let me just adjust the angle. Which is, this is a facsimile, of course. The original of this particular manuscript is in the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And this is a very high-quality facsimile organized by a friend and colleague of mine called Michael Chidester, and bound. He takes this so far that the choirs are hand-bound in the same choir structure, so they have the same collation as the original manuscript. Wow, nice. Which means how it's stitched together in the facsimile is the same as how it's stitched together in the original. Wow. Which is like a level of detail that makes a tiny proportion of the population ecstatically happy, and I just happen to be part of that tiny proportion. I actually learned bookbinding so that I could bind my own facsimiles in the proper way, in the same way as the originals. And then, cool. and then Michael just, just starts producing these gorgeous facsimiles, which are bound exactly as the originals are bound. It's like, oh, my God. That, that's the, is, the sword geek there is really, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, right. I heard uh, Dacre Stoker did something very similar with Bram Stoker's Dracula. They recreated oh, cool. the, the first edition, even to the point where the pages were the same type of material, and they added, mm. like, 
uh, a smell and dust so that it was oh, like, wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> you know? fantastic. So um, um, where uh, can people who are looking to learn about sword use, where can they find your book? You can find all of my books at swordschool.com, but also they can find them anywhere, anywhere the books are sold. You know, I won't mention the world's longest river, but there are other online establishments. And of course, local bookstores can order them in and you can get them from your library. The library probably doesn't have them in stock. because They're rather niche. But if you ask the librarian nicely, they might order a copy in for you. And as any writer will tell you, that is a good thing for writers when libraries order copies of their books. I guess library would be my number one choice for people to go to. Sourceschool.com would be my second choice. And anywhere else on the internet would be my third. Or even better, go to swordschool.com, order two copies, one for yourself and one for your local library. Now, you, sir, are a genius. Yes. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Yes. We'd love people to do that. Yeah, it's yeah. a win all around. Absolutely. <laughs> so do you have plans for uh, your next book? Because I think you have four out. Is that No, I've got about 14. 14. Okay. Something like okay. that. Uh, I've lost track. It also depends exactly how you count them. but. Yeah, so my next book, the one that I'm currently finishing up a workbook on Ahmed Zare, which is the martial art of Fiori de Liberi, which includes like wrestling and dagger combat and swords, oh, cool. um, spears, poleaxes, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm producing a workbook which has, actually, I've done the same thing with my rapier workbooks, which actually you might find interesting because it's a kind of a quirky way to do things. Like the problem with a printed book is that it's fixed in space and time and you can't get videos in. Get pictures into it, novel. So what I've done is I've produced a hold up the camera so you can see it. So there's a picture from the historical source. There's me explaining how to do the thing in the picture, and then there's a, a link to a video. Oh, and a nice! QR code. So you can just point your phone at the QR code, and it will take you straight to the video. That's cool, right? Yeah. So you can see a video of the action being done rather than just static pictures. So right. I'm doing that for my Armadzari work. You're um, a, ve a very large combination of very ancient methods and texts with modern technology. That's superb. Yeah. Using it in the best way. I, I, it, it just strikes me that we have all these fantastic tools available to us, and it would be silly not to use them. And when they invent lightsabers, I will probably <laughs> move the lightsabers. But yeah, but you asked about my next book. So after the, the next workbook comes out, the next major book I'm working on is how book about how to teach historical martial arts or anything else. Because teaching is a skill in itself. As any other skill, it can be practiced and it can be taught. But in my community, the historical martial arts community, we don't really have any proper teacher training programs or teacher training resources for the up and coming young instructors. Again, most people who start who end up teaching historical martial arts, they do it because they're living somewhere that doesn't have an existing club. So they get some friends who want to fight with swords and they start playing around with stuff. And then eventually they realize they have to start a club because they need access to maybe renting a space or insurance or whatever. And so they start a club and they need someone to teach classes in the club. And so this person who started the club tends to end up teaching the classes. And that's not what they originally set out to do. They originally set out just to hit their friends with swords. It's a perfectly good thing to want to do. And now they end up 
teaching when perhaps they don't have any background or training or even interest originally in teaching. And personally, for me, teaching is my absolute best learning environment, right? It's, you know, if I wasn't teaching historical martial arts, I'd be teaching something else. And you know, if I'm stuck on a problem, woodworking problem or any other kind of problem, I conjure up an imaginary student and I teach them how to solve the problem. And that's how I get access to my, the best bits of my brain. So I teach because I want to teach. Most people in my community teach because somebody has to and they're stepping up, right? So for them, I'm writing a book about how to go about teaching, how to make it basically effective so the students learn, but also so you don't burn out as the instructor. It's a pretty intense situation to be in, and it's hard. It's a hard skill, and so I'm producing this book so that my colleagues and friends have a resource so that those who have to teach at least have a method for teaching. It's proven and authoritative. Hmm. You've it's it's not the hey I, I I took a year of karate and they handed me a sword so I wrote a book because now I'm an expert. You've been <laughs> right. doing this in yeah, your yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been teaching for a living for twenty years, so I think I've pretty much got a handle on how to do it. But saying that, I'm still I am signed up to go on a parkour coaches course next month. Even though I don't do parkour, I, I know the guy who's running it, and he said it's okay for a non-parkour person to come along because I want to see how they teach their teachers. Right? And, and I have colleagues and friends who are, for example, high school teachers who have been taught teach in many cases so i'm running stuff by them and getting advice from them yeah there is an entire body of knowledge of teaching strategies and how to teach out there it's just you know some poor person running a club somewhere and has a day job and is busy and that you can't really expect them to do a few thousand hours of research to just become a bit better at teaching when they're not even particularly interested in teaching it's much better if I do all of that, and then I can summarize it all and package it all in a sword-friendly format and send it out. And you know. and I think that's a, a very important because arguably you're probably one of the main authorities on sword use, sword play, sword fighting in the world at this point. You've been studying it, yeah. doing it, and researching more than probably anyone out there. But you're still... I, I, have, I have colleagues at my level, for sure. Okay, um, but you're still humbled that I'm not the expert, so I know everything. It's always learning more, always something new and different, which is exactly what makes you the authority on this. I, I think it's, it's that's right. There's a saying in martial arts, some people have 10 years experience, and some people have one years of experience 10 times. <laughs> Just putting the time in doesn't necessarily do it. You have to be, well, in... in Put it in fencing terms, you have to be getting punted in the face regularly to keep progressing. And it, the tricky bit is because I'm, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so as my community has gotten better and as my students have improved and what have you, they've gently pushed me upwards. But I started with absolutely no qualifications or experience because there were no qualifications to be had and no one was teaching this. And so I've done what I could over the year to basically, over the years to 
become as good as my students deserve, which is impossible. Like, like you'll never be as good a parent as your children deserve, but you can at least try to be as, as good as they right. deserve. Yeah, yeah, it's just looking for ways to make that happen when there isn't a kind of properly you know, signposted career path. And that's a, a good analogy for writers, because we're going to talk writer stuff here in a minute, too. Oh, sure. Uh, writers do the same as martial artists. Hey, I've been doing this a week. How come I'm doing all these <laughs> other things? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so have you heard from anyone like like a movie director or a stuntman or something that said, hey, we're using your book. We have some questions for this movie we're making. or, or um, whatever, a documentary even or no. whatever. So people who are doing movies and TV and what have you, they are not looking for historically correct <laughs> ways of using weapons. No, it's not at all. It's okay. I, I have colleagues who specialize in basically adapting historical martial arts for stage and screen. So whenever I do get somebody asking me, can you help with this or the other, I direct them to one of my colleagues who specializes in adapting these arts for stage and screen. It's not really my jam. If you think about it, in any kind of stage or screen combat, everyone should see what's happening, but nobody dies. Okay? In an actual sword fight, nobody should see what just happened, and somebody dies. Okay? So although there's a huge kind of overlap in skill set, the fundamental goals of the activities are completely different. And there are some great fight directors out there. I There are very few good sword fights on screen because it's very difficult to make a sword fight on screen work unless the actors are highly trained sword people themselves. You think of the fantastic kung fu fights in the Matrix. This the crew, the actors, the cast were trained in kung fu for nine months or something, like day in day out for nine months, so that they could do it well on screen. Now, if somebody sent I don't know, pick an actor to me to be trained so that they could portray a medieval knight well on screen and get all the sword stuff. Yes, that I could help. But generally speaking, they don't want that. And yeah, it's not really something I've ever put much thought to. Okay. I know when I watch some of the sword fighting uh, stuff on screen, I always got to laugh. The the one move they all seem to make is one guy swinging the sword and the other guy swings to block it, but it's like an X up above their heads. I'm like, where were you trying to hit? Yeah, and that, that's that's a thing you see a lot. It's like people aiming for the sword rather than aiming for the person yes. they're trying to hit. And it's, it's that. And another classic is somebody turns and puts their sword in the way and the other person a beat later hits the sword. It's, no. That's, why <laughs> yeah. would you do that? That does not make sense. Right. Uh, also, treating swords like they're not sharp, like hammering together them together like they're sticks. Like, sorry, the sword is. Think of a sword as a very large kitchen knife. It's a blade. It does blade stuff. It's not a. It's not a percussion <laughs> weapon. Yeah, you just smacked it together twenty times, but you're not cutting anything now. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. All right. So before we move on to other stuff, real quick, guy, tell everybody listening if they were in an elevator, why they should. Look at getting your book. Here's a funny thing. I don't like persuading people to buy my book. Okay. My feeling is okay. my feeling is that if you see my books there, like whichever one it is, swords are cool, 
And if you think stores are cool and you see that book, you're going to go, oh, my God, I want that book. That's enough. So I put stuff in front of people, but I don't try and persuade them to buy it. I've never persuaded anybody to come to one of my classes. If somebody asks me what I do and I tell them what I do for a living and they say, oh, when's the next beginner's course? I will tell them. Or if they say, oh, do you think somebody my age could do it? I will reassure them. Or, oh, do you think someone with this disability could do it? I will reassure them and say, yes, of course you can. We'll figure it out. But if they say, oh, okay, sounds interesting, I suppose. I just let it go because it's it's way too cool to waste on people who are interested. Right. And I think that's cool. That's very valid and probably even stronger because I'm sitting here listening to you going, yeah, I'd check that book out. And because the martial arts style I haven't done for a couple of years and I like learning new stuff. I'm interested in the swords. You're right. Yeah, that's there you go. That's the selling point. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you.